All right. Well, if you are a visitor today, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. We are really glad that you're here. And we are beginning a, you have come on a good week to visit. Uh, we are beginning a three-week series uh, on spiritual warfare. And how we're going to go about this is we're basically going to be considering uh, three titles uh, that are given to our enemy, what the scripture calls the devil, uh, which is the deceiver, the tempter, and the accuser. And today we're going to consider the topic of deception. Before we jump in, I want to begin with a quote uh, from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He says this, he goes, I freely admit that real Christianity goes much nearer to dualism than people think. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war, but it does not think that this war is between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. One of the things that I've been meditating on a lot recently is how modern society and all of its intellectual and rational glory has come up against a wall when it comes to explaining evil from a natural standpoint. I think the rejection of a literal devil and demons as superstition and original sin as the fabrication of an archaic religious system has done nothing to advance a solution but only worsen the dilemma. The questions move forward without answers, and these are the kind of questions that I think we constantly hear society wrestling with. Why can't we solve the basic problems of humanity? Why can't we understand ourselves? Why are we so ultimately powerless in changing our human nature? Why is the world filled with so much pain and evil? As Ray Steadman, one of my favorite preachers from the Jesus movement, put it, the world tries to solve the problem of, of evil one of three ways, either with legislation, education, or by creating a better environment to live in. And I would argue that none of those have been that successful. Because the battle, as the Apostle Paul in the New Testament puts it, is not primarily against flesh and blood, but, it's, but it is spiritual. Paul says that behind all of the human antagonists of this world and tells us that there is a cosmic battle occurring between two spiritual kingdoms, the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Behind the insoluble dilemma of human evil, there is an unseen force at play in the cosmos, and that force is transcendent evil, a personal evil. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or methods or tactics. For our struggle, and I think that this is the key verse for us to understand when we think about spiritual warfare, 
Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. In fact, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says that the whole world lies under the sway or even the control of the wicked one. Jesus himself said on the night of his betrayal, let us go from here for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. The powerful good news of the gospel is that Jesus, we are told, on the cross of Calvary defeated the devil, death, and the dark systems of this world, including sin itself which is why the gospel is good news and why we need to be a community that continues to center on the cross. Now, when it comes to the questions of the origin of the devil, I'm not here to give you a lecture. I'm here to give you a sermon. And there's a lot of speculation around the origin of the devil. There are two key texts. You can read it on your own. One's in Ezekiel 28. The other one's in Isaiah 14. Some say that it's not about the devil. Some say that it is about the devil. It doesn't really matter. All we know is that in Genesis, right in the beginning of the story, there is this strange character, the serpent, which we are told in Revelation is the devil, the deceiver, uh, and that he plays a significant role behind the scenes from from Genesis all the way to Revelation. What is important for us uh, to comprehend as Christians is that the Bible is not primarily a book about the devil and demons. It's primarily a book about God's creation and the center of that creation, which is us, humanity. And so as we find the scripture's description of this enemy that continues to poke his head out through and woven in through the story, this spiritual war that is happening behind what is seen, what we are told about the devil is important. And what we are told is that he is powerful and organized. He's not Milton's devil who, who is the ruler over the city pandemonium, which means chaos. Uh, Jesus actually says that the devil and the demons are an organized kingdom. Powerful and organized. He is the ruler of the cosmos, even though he's defeated. For Jesus is the king over everything. He is not solitary. That is, that you personally dealing with Satan himself. He's not omnipresent. Scripture never declares that. He's probably more interested in other people. But don't worry, because we're told that there are demons functioning inside. You know, and I'm not trying to do is create this, this, this underlying fear where there's a demon under every rock. Uh, but in Portland, there might be. <laughs> He is immaterial and manipulative. Scripture refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. He is immortal and he is deceptive. He is subtle and I think one of the most important things for us to understand is he is attractive. He is not the red monster with horns and a tail and a pitchfork. He is far more alluring, so alluring that he even has the ability and often does his most efficient work within the church itself. See, conflict is at the heart of the universe. There are enemies of the cross, and the more deeply we as a community of Christ focus in on being a part of his mission that is bringing the gospel to the world, the greater the target will be on our church. The greater the target will be on our backs. 
And I think that this is why we need to understand that scripture is far more combative in its language than it is contemplative. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We need to understand that the enemy's primary ambition in regards to God's children is to destroy our testimony by tempting us to work in independence from God. So let me just lay out just a couple misconceptions about spiritual warfare before we jump into deception. First of all, spiritual warfare is not about casting blame onto Satan for your sin. In fact, if Satan died today, you would continue to sin tomorrow. This is why Luther actually said that the three enemies of the believer is the devil, the world, and the flesh. I would just argue it's the devil and the flesh because we're told the world is under the sway of the wicked one. And so the world systems that actually lead humanity away from God is that there is this combination of the nature of human sin with this dominion of darkness that is playing on that fallenness to keep us from coming to the truth of, of what we can have in the salvation that has been worked out for humanity in Jesus. Spiritual warfare is not about reacting to an attack, but it's being prepared for one. Spiritual warfare is not about preventing physical and emotional suffering, but about gaining spiritual victories, which will often come at a very high price. Every war has carnage, and the spiritual war is no exception. And we need to understand that Jesus said, count the cost to follow him. Now, here's the thing. My friends have a band called Demon Hunter. It's a clever name. But we're not called to go out and hunt demons. In fact, the way that we engage in the spiritual battle is actually by just being witnesses to the gospel of truth. Because the moment you begin to be ones who proclaim the goodness and the, and the graciousness and the radical love of Jesus to a lost world, you have begun the battle. And this is why Jesus even said, when we pray as a community, we don't pray, Jesus, help us find the devil so that we can fight him. No, he says, and when you pray, pray like this, keep us from the evil one. I think that it's important for us to understand. So when I talk about engaging in war and being ready for war, I'm not talking about going out and looking for, we're not, we're not called to become uh, exorcists. No, we are a people that are about the gospel of good news and to be about the gospel is to engage in the battle. Spiritual warfare is not for the purpose of protecting ourselves or our agendas in our own private war, but for engaging sacrificially, courageously, aggressively in our witness to the gospel of grace. So let's begin to think about deception. If I can get the first slide up. Here is really the key text for us to be thinking about. Because deception, I, I would like to say that deception is the devil's native tongue. We're going to consider next week temptation and then the third week uh, accusation. And I would say that those are the one-two punch, but they, the foundation for both of them is that the devil's a liar. Temptation is, hey, it's not that big of a deal. Just do it. God will forgive you. And then you do it, and then the other punch comes in. God will never forgive you for that. 
Temptation, accusation. It's weird how his tactics remain the same and yet they are so effective. But deception is something that is important for us to understand. You see, truth is the devil's main objective enemy. Truth, the reality of God, which is what we find in Jesus, because he is the truth and it is his major passion, is also the devil's major hate. <laughs> Jesus says this in John chapter 8, verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Deception is a major problem for us, for humanity. In our sinful state, we are already prone to the greatest lie there is, which is unbelief. And I think that it's important for us to even think in terms as believers of the warning that Paul gave in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, when we think of the spiritual reality and, and, and the deception that often comes into the church, is that the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Just in case you're wondering if the scripture really defines the devil and demons as personal evil. Yes, yes it does. I will say out of the gate that when Door of Hope first began, I think that I was a bit skeptical about the reality of the demonic. I mean, I believed in it, but I hadn't really experienced it, not in, the way, not in the way that it made me think about it that much until Door of Hope began, and I began to see the manifestations of demonic realities in a way that would make the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And not only that, when I preached the first series at Door of Hope on spiritual warfare, I myself became a target by which I entered into an eight-month period of deep deception in which I believed a lie that almost unhinged my whole world. I've seen the oppression that, that demons can bring upon not only those that are outside of the faith, but also those in the faith as well. And so for me, it's almost become pragmatic. It's just a reality. And I don't know why anyone in the faith would say that they believe that God became flesh 2,000 years ago and that this, that this God-man walked on the earth in sinless perfection and that he atoned for the world's sin, past, present, and future on the cross. And you say you believe that, but you don't believe in the devil. Listen, you've already crossed the threshold of what society considers acceptable for believing. <laughs> so let us realize that actually evil is almost an easier thing uh, to, uh, to look around and see tangibly and that there's something that goes beyond explanation. Uh, and there are certain things in human history that are so evil that, that the greatest critics of the church will still recognize that there is something beyond even the basic tendencies of humans to do bad things, that there is evil that is so dark that it almost has a supernatural or a metaphysical reality. That comes off the lips of many skeptics and critics of the church. So, how does the enemy deceive? How does he deceive? Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, 
verse 3, it says, But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, which had begun to drift from the truth. And he compares the deceptions that they were beginning to believe with the deception that we find in the beginning of our scriptures, which is in the book of Genesis, when we read about what is commonly referred to as the fall of humanity. David Tackle, um, in his book, The Truth About Lies and the Lies About Truth, uh, really begins to reveal in a very powerful way, and we have the book in the bookstore, I would recommend it. He, he says that the, the lies that we believe are legion. And he kind of just even gives a, a list, a, a kind of a plethora of lies that are really common. And, and as a pastor, I have sat with many of you that have bought into these lies. And that is the, the lie that I will never really be free. The lie that evil seems to have the last word in this world and is going to be the victor. The lie that I can't forgive myself for and you fill in the blank. The lie that God is waiting for me to be free so I can learn humility. The lie that God will never get over his disappointment in me. The lie, if you knew me better, you would reject me. That's actually true for me. Um, but it can be a lie if one meditates upon it too much. Accepting one lie weakens our ability to withstand others. And this is important for us to understand. You see, the serpent's agenda is to isolate us from God and community. Don't trust anyone, especially authority. Isn't that the motto of the age? I'm a total contrarian. Tell me not to do something, I'll do, the, I'll do it. Tell me that you like something, I'll do the exact opposite. I didn't want people to shake hands when they came to church. I didn't do it. Then people said, I love it that we don't do it. I'm like, we're going to start doing it now. <laughs> we grossly underestimate the power of deception, both in regards to the extent of its presence in our lives and in regard to its effects on our heart and mind. As I've been working on a, a memoir, one of the things that's been so fascinating uh, to me is that as I wrestle with my own history of how many things that I have uh, that I have believed that when I really began to explore my memories weren't true, but actually had lasting impacts on my trajectory. One of the, one of the big lies that I believed from my childhood is that, is that my first stepdad was this horrible, awful man, uh, almost abusive toward me. But when I began to actually dig into my memories of my mom's first marriage, I actually discovered that I did not have a single memory of him, except for a single picture that I saw him. I was seven years old, and my, the reason my mom, I'm like, mom, I don't remember him. I know that, I know that he wasn't a good husband, and, and I know that he was a bit of a jerk and a womanizer, but I, you know, I've always kind of, he's been, for me, my, my childhood, he's like the archetype of childhood evil. He's like the, he's my scapegoat. And my mom said, well, the reason you don't remember him is because he was never there. He was out chasing ladies. He was never around. I'm like, interesting, because he was my devil, but he wasn't even there. And yet it shaped 
much of what I believed about my own childhood. The, the examples of that kind of reality is, is so many, so vast. I think it's, it's, it's almost disheartening. You're like, I don't think I trust anything anymore. After reading Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, we should be far less trustful in our thought process. Uh, so, so let's look. Uh, what I want us to look at in regards to deception really are just, are just three realities that come from the Genesis story that I think speak to uh, this, this, very, this very truth. And, and, and what we're going to look at is, is what I think is the, the three kind of things that the, that the serpent does with Eve that give us an understanding of how, how there is a spiritual um, play upon our, at, our already sinful nature and bent toward unbelief. And, and the spiritual playing upon our natural sinful temperaments uh, is this, is that the devil comes to, to breed seed of doubt. He asks the question, is God trustworthy? And then the devil diminishes the consequences of actually functioning contrary to how God would have us function. It's like it's not that big of a deal. He lies to us about that. It's not going to actually hurt you. And then he attacks character. And in his attacking upon God's character, he breeds the lie into us that we would actually be more free if we would free ourselves from his rule. So beginning with this seed of doubt, this question that Satan basically presents uh, to Eve, and it says in Genesis chapter 3, in verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Notice the subtlety of this question. Notice the seed that is planted here, the seed of doubt. <laughs> you know what is fascinating to me? is that about 10 years ago, actually I would say now, it'd be like, it'd be almost 18 years ago, there was a new movement within the church. And it was being kind of touted as the new revival, like the next revival, and it was called the Emergent Movement. And the Emergent Movement was built upon this very tactic, which is instead of actually answering life's questions, with the authority of Scripture, let's begin to poke at the truths of Scripture and present it in means of always asking questions but never coming to any sort of definitive answer. Now, I'm not saying that everyone within the emergent movement fell into that trapping, but many of its kind of superstar preachers, that was exactly the MO, and it was extremely appealing uh, to young people in the church. They loved it because it, seemed, it didn't seem so dogmatic. It didn't seem so wooden. It didn't seem so literal. It, it created the opportunity, the space to continue to be skeptics while at the same time saying, I'm, I think I'm a believer, but who can really know? I mean, that would almost seem like that should have been like an emergent t-shirt motto. I think I'm a believer, but who can really know? When Paul says, you should have assurance of your faith. You're like, he, he probably didn't really mean that. And you have, there were books that came out. I mean, some, I can think of some very key books, and I'm not even going to mention them, but I remember one specifically. It was like, is the virgin birth necessary? 
And then the next one is, is there really final judgment? And then the next one is, is Jesus even really the Son of God? It was like this, it was just like a, it was like a house of cards. The moment the gospel was presented in terms of maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but all I know is that if you have some kind of faith that is probably going to be more beneficial than having nothing. It's that kind of seed of doubt about the authority of Scripture. If we can avoid the Scripture as being authoritative, then we'll be free from, from the, the mockery of the world for, for holding so tenaciously to such an archaic system that doesn't seem to align with our ways of thinking any longer. We are enlightened people, right? Are we really enlightened? Why does every time I ask that question, Eugene Peterson's translation of Psalm 14 come to mind? God looks down from heaven to see if there is one man or one woman that isn't an idiot. And he comes up with a string of zeros. You see, what we often miss is that unbelief, which is what the enemy is sowing into Eve's mind, and it's the very thing that he continues to sow into our minds. He plays upon our doubts until we grab a hold of them in a way and begin to doubt God's goodness. But what we forget is that, is that unbelief itself is actually a form of belief. It's a belief in a lie. And it's due to deception. You see, Eve is duly drawn to this conversation and she in adding neither shall you touch it she overcorrects the error and magnifies God's strictness and there's where the enemy is effective because she says he said if we touch it we'll die we don't have that in the original in, in what God commanded to Adam so so Eve actually adds to God's strictness she has taken the bait the enemy has planted, sown the seed of doubt, and, and even an overcorrection falls right into his hands and begins to believe something that's not true about God, that he does not have their best at heart. I think that this is where we often fall into our own trappings. How often do you doubt God's goodness in this world? toward you how often do you doubt the trustworthiness of scripture do you wrestle with those things because i would say that the question isn't put your faith in the scripture one can't believe the scripture to be true unless the Spirit has drawn you to the truth of Jesus. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And he says, if I be lifted up, that's why I always say, I don't start with, with Noah's Ark when I talk to people about the gospel. I start with Jesus. I start with the centrality of the cross. I begin with the very one that Scripture is pointing to from cover to cover, and that is to King Jesus. Scripture is authoritative for the life of the believer and the enemy wants to continually get us to question its authority because without the word we don't know about Christ. We can have, we can have the Holy Spirit as a good teacher but if we're horrible students, he can't instruct us. 
He's not going to place the Scripture in our minds by osmosis. We learn the Word and we trust that the Spirit will teach us and instruct us. But if the enemy can get us to doubt its truth, can get us to actually ignore it and pretend like it's some sort of archaic text that the world continues to poke at, well, there is where we find that we are continuing to be duped by the same lie that our first parents were. Romans chapter 1, verse 25 says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie when it talks about God's wrath, His judgment being poured out on the earth. It says, and worshiped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's interesting that Eve is not listening to the Creator. Now she's listening to the created thing. And it is the falseness of that, of that lie, the seed of doubt, that begins to make its way into her heart. And it goes on in Romans 1.28, Furthermore, as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. I always think that we, we often misunderstand the wrath of God. The wrath in Romans 1 is, 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 is God giving people over to the very things that they think they want instead of Him. It's a terrifying reality. For His wrath is His love violated. He hates sin because it robs Him of what He loves, which is people. But the enemy is trying to plant seeds of doubt about God's love toward us which leads to the diminishment of consequences. Look what he goes on to say. She, she, Eve says, you know, if we eat the fruit, we'll die. And here is just the blatant lie right from the lips of the enemy. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. You see, after the query of the flat contradiction, it is the serpent's word against God's. And this is fascinating. The first doctrine to be denied in Scripture is judgment. <laughs> what we don't understand, I, I think this is so important for us to understand. I'm not even talking about final judgment. The fact that every person will stand before King Jesus one day. It says, every knee shall bow to Him as Lord. And I would say that He will be either be Lord our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Judge. But the, the bigger issue that's at play, especially in the believer's life, especially within the church, is that the enemy constantly downplays the consequences of choosing a path of disobedience. Jesus has come to set us free, and he says whoever sins is a slave to sin. Where the enemy gets gets into our minds is that, as we'll consider it next week, is the, is the deception that he brings through temptation. It's not that big of a deal. God will forgive you. It's all grace. And yes, it's true that grace, God's pure gift, his one-way love toward us is an immovable reality. But it doesn't change the fact that when we give ourselves over to sin, there is cause and effect. Can you cheat on your husband or wife and still experience the grace of Jesus? Yes, you can. But are you not realizing that you will blow up your life? That you will actually do great damage to your loved ones? You see, those are the kinds of things that we don't think about. Satan gets us blind to the desire 
in such a way that we lose sight of the consequences. I know this as a guy who is driven by, I mean, I, I think as a, one of the things that's a strength for me as a leader is that I'm, I'm a, a gut level decision maker and I get a, an instinct that we should go somewhere and, and we go. And that's like one of the, the way that I've led. The danger of that is that the underbelly of it is an impulsive desire that one doesn't think through the, the, the full consequences of it. Now that is extremely dangerous when it comes to the ways that sin plays upon us and works itself out in us. And then the enemy takes advantage of that already fallen nature and says, just do it. It's not that big of a deal. You're sitting alone at your computer at night and you're frustrated because you haven't had the intimacy that you think you deserve in your marriage. And all of a sudden Satan's like, hey, look at that person's withholding from you. Just give yourself to it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not a real person. It's just a screen. How many lies like that do we believe? Oh, if you, you want this, just go ahead and, and get it. It doesn't need to be honest. Just take it. All the lies that we believe lead to consequences. There is, and this is the thing that we see the enemy doing here with Eve. It's a diminishment of the consequences. It's not going to actually hurt you, but what we forget is that sin kills. Sin brings death into our lives. It kills relationships. It kills our spirits. I, I was thinking about this. One of the, way, one of the things that I've seen in uh, just firsthand uh, something that a lie that kills so effectively is I, I've had a few friends in my life that have been addicted to, her, to heroin and it is unbelievable the way that their belief that this is the best thing that they could experience turns them literally into walking dead people I mean where their eyes become this there's a there's a grayness almost to the eye where like if the eye is the window of the soul it's almost like the soul is being is being squished down to almost non-existence to believe a lie of such intensity is to is to literally begin to taste death in life and there is a good death and there is a bad death we want to be a people of the good death, which is the good death of the cross of Christ, where we die to the lie of who God never intended us to be and come alive in Jesus' resurrection life. But we see the death that comes through the deception all around us. We often find it in our own lives, and the diminishment of consequences is one of the ways that the enemy is extremely effective of keeping us in bondage to things that are less than us. I think it was George McDonald who said that a, that a person is in bondage to anything that they cannot part with that is less than their humanity. Man, it's a powerful reality. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of such thing, God's wrath comes upon those who are disobedient. Finally, attack on character. God is holding back from you. This is what the enemy is continually proclaiming to us. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. He's holding, the only reason he doesn't want you to eat the fruit is because he doesn't want you to have the best. He's not a good God. He's not a gracious God. He's a, he's a vindictive God. He has a secret mean streak. And just in case you were wondering, there are plenty 
within the church that believe that God has a secret mean streak. I almost feel like there are some within, within certain theological circles that almost take great pride in the idea that behind what can be known, God is actually secretly quite vindictive. Choosing the majority of humanity for hell and only saving just a small portion. And it always seems to be the people within that very small portion that are so convinced that God, God is, is secretly vindictive. I don't know if they would proclaim that if they thought he was vindictive toward them. I think that this reality of attack on God's character, one of the, the enemy's greatest works within the church is getting God's people to believe false things about their God. One of the things that we often believe, and it's the thing that I think hurts our witness more than anything, is that God is consistently disappointed with me. That my sin is greater than his sacrifice. But I, I, I was struck as I, I listened to um, uh, Brian Stevenson speak in, in England, the, the man who wrote uh, Just Mercy, and, and I think this, this statement that he made is, is a statement that the church needs to cling to with a tenacity because it's a, it's a revelation of God's goodness and graciousness to our people. And that is that every person, he defends people uh, that are on death row. And one of the great statements that he makes, and it's kind of a central pillar to everything that he believes and writes about and speaks about, is that every person is more than their worst act. And yet the enemy wants us to believe that that's actually not true. That we are a people that are consistently disappointing God. That God is mad at us. Who is the first person to walk in Scripture? Do you guys know? It's an unfair question. Who do we see walking first in Scripture? It's God. It's not God who turned his back on humanity after the fall. It's humanity that went into hiding. God is found walking in the garden and calling lost humanity right back to himself. From Genesis all the way to Revelation is a God who is in pursuit of lost humanity. The main thing that the enemy wants to keep you from is the belief that there is total victory in Jesus and that Jesus really did die on a cross and kill sin once and for all, offering freedom to all who put their faith in him. And we forget that the enemy is a defeated foe. That's why he's so dangerous. Augustine referred to the devil as like a wounded dog. This is the most dangerous kind of dog. His bite is vicious. And what this brings us to is when we actually believe that God doesn't have our best, that, he's, that when we start to believe that he's not as good uh, as, as others say that he is, it, it also leads us to this other false belief, which is the desire for freedom from what we perceive to be the tyranny of a God whom we are supposed to serve. And so we think this great lie, and the enemy loves it when we give ourselves to this false belief, which is the greatest false belief that I think marks Western civilization, and that is you are 
God. That you alone have the ability to define what is right and what is wrong. That you alone have the power to set yourself free. It's so weird that people still believe it because the evidence is so contrary to that. Have you guys seen that book that's like a New York Times bestseller? It's, it, it's, it, it, it has a little expletive in its title. It's, you're a bad A, you just don't know it. And I'm like, I think that the title of the book is, you are bad and an A. <laughs> and you should know it. <laughs> I'm going to write that book. That's going to be my first Christian book. <laughs> going to just draw deeply into my strong conviction and low, low anthropology. Uh, we are far more broken than we think we are. We are far more bound than we think we are. You see, this is the idea that the enemy brings in. He's like, God isn't trustworthy, and you are going to be happier if you free yourself from him. As it turns out, this particular lie is the fundamental problem humans face today. The belief that we can be the masters of our own destiny. And it just simply isn't true. We are far more bound and limited than we like to admit. And that our freedom is not found in our attempts to be our own masters because I have said this from the beginning of Door of Hope and I'll say it again. The worst master you will ever face is not the devil, it's yourself. The devil wants you to continue to make yourself the master. He doesn't care if you serve him or serve yourself as long as you're not serving Jesus. And so the tempter here pits his bare assertion against the word and the works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as enslavement, and the suicidal plunge as a leap into life. All these things will I give thee. The pattern repeats in Christ's temptations and it repeats in ours as well. And this is why we need to understand what Lewis said in Paralandria when from the lips of the unman, Weston, I have come to give you death and to give it to you abundantly. That is the lie. That's the truth about the devil. But he wants us to believe that it's the opposite that we'll experience. So how do we fight deception? Ephesians tells us that we're to put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The first piece of spiritual armor is the belt of truth. The belt of truth would hold all the rest of the armor together. And I would just simply say it is found in three things that we need to understand. We need to first and foremost be a people that are, that are marked by word and spirit. And I, I say specifically that balance because in John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to his Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We need to be a people of the Scriptures. We have to be a people of the scriptures. We need to give our time and our energy to God's word. He has given us his words in the form of a book. And I know some of you don't like to read. Great, there's audiobooks of it. Uh, the Bible Project is not the Bible, but you should watch it. Learn the scriptures. Spend time in the scriptures. But listen, the scriptures by themselves is just a dead book in your hands. We need the Holy Spirit to illuminate and bring them to life. And this is exactly what Jesus promised in John 16, verse 13. But when He, the Spirit of what? Truth. 
comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. We have been given the Holy Spirit. We have been born again. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been regenerated. Anyone who is in Christ, all things are new. We have the Spirit of God to guide us and to direct us into the truth of who Jesus is. To bring life and power and authority to our lives so that we're not just talking about Jesus, but we literally become walking sacraments by which Jesus is seen and experienced. And this is why we can't have the Word without the Spirit. That's dead orthodoxy. Nor can we have the Spirit without the Word. That's just unorthodox mysticism. We need the balance of both. Secondly, we need confession. Listen, we all believe in lies. We speak lies. We, we are, live in a society that continually feeds lies to us. Our schools are fallen heads teaching fallen heads. This is the reality by which we live. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. One of the greatest means of fighting against the deception of the enemy is confession. Speaking out the lie that you have believed in, in the context of community so that we can find freedom from it. This is why I'm always calling you guys to come and pray. In December, we're gonna pray for 24 days straight at 6 a.m. here in the morning. I will make you coffee every day and I will pray with you every single day. We want to see revival in our city. We need to be a people that are marked by word and spirit, confessing our brokenness to one another and to God. And this is where we find ourselves walking in the light. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The enemy wants you to believe that you're fine. He lies to you. He lies to you about God. He lies to you about yourself. He lies to you about others. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I am convinced that one of the key ways toward a victorious life is when we as a community live in a continual posture of humble confession. And then third, and I would argue most importantly, the gospel. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken away, he's taken away guilt, he's taken away shame because he has taken away sin. Jesus has dealt with sin once and for all, nailing it to the cross, and look what else he has done. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is, the devil and the dominions of darkness, he has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If you guys want to understand why, for me, we are not preaching or even being the church unless we gather weekly around the gospel of Jesus, and that means that we are a people that preach Christ and him crucified. And when I talk about the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus, the powerful reality of the cross is because he did not stay dead. But you can't talk about resurrection unless first you talk about death because it assumes death. And what we need to understand is that our victorious life, 
Our ability to overcome the attacks of the enemy is not by us trying to protect our lives. It's not by us trying to internalize our our spiritual growth. It's about moving down to the foot of the cross and dying with Jesus daily, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices so that we can live in the power of his resurrection life. This is why we need to be a people that engage. Engaging in spiritual warfare is engaging in the witness to the cross, a witness to the gospel of Jesus, a call for people to recognize that your brokenness has been dealt with by King Jesus. Give yourself to him. He's worth following. What will it cost you? It'll cost you everything, but it's still worth it because everything you have without Jesus is nothing. But everything with Jesus everything falls into its proper place. And we can actually begin to enjoy the life that God has given us. We can actually enjoy heaven on the way to heaven because what makes heaven heaven is Christ Jesus, the love of our lives in the midst of our life. He loves you. The thing the enemy wants you to believe, the lie he wants you to believe more than anything else is that there are sins that you have committed that cannot be forgiven. And I want you to know, I don't care how deep your sin has gone. Christ Jesus' love goes deeper still. That the cross is our victory over sin, over death, and over the devil and his lies. Hold to the truth. Live in the truth. Jesus is the truth. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.